In chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. I don't want to overstress it, but man, this is one of the most encouraging passages in all of the Bible. I doubt seriously if one message will do it, we'll probably be in the same next week. But let us look at this glorious consolation of good news, and let us remember today what Jesus has promised to His children. It is a promise. John 14 beginning in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, if I go to prepare a place for you, man, see the words, hear the words. I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you, this this verse 7 is a comforting verse if it's read rightly. If you have believed me, if, if you have known me, then you will know my Father also. Look, already you know him. Right now you know him. And you have seen him. And we know what will happen later. He'll say to Philip, look, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So he comforts the confusion of not knowing where and why and all of these things. And all the comfort, listen, is bound up in Christ. So let's move the disclaimers out of the way. (laughs) All those worthless preachers who stand in pulpits at funerals and preach this text and try to comfort your heart that one day you'll see grandma again have missed the gospel. Look, I'm not comforted that I'll see my grandma someday. I'm comforted that my Savior who purchased my soul will personally come and pick me up that I can be with Him. Now, if grandma's there, so be it. But I only want Christ. That's the comfort, is that we'll be with Christ. And by the way, in this passage... Peter's grandma didn't die, nor did Thomas's grandma die. In this passage, the only one dying is Jesus. Now that's humbling, because in chapter 13, we find out that the very one who ought to have his feet washed was the one who did the washing of their feet. 
And now we come to another chapter in which the one who is going to be slaughtered on a cross called Calvary, someone ought to minister to him, and yet we find again Christ ministering to them. Is this not humbling that that Jesus in his most great hour of darkness is trying to figure out how to comfort those who are not about to be slaughtered? You don't understand what Jesus does for sinners? I mean, look, think about it. If you knew that tomorrow you were going to be hung upon a cross, beaten and spit upon, you'd want somebody to have sympathy for you. But the very one who deserves sympathy doesn't ask for any. He tries to figure out how he can comfort you. And what is the trouble of our passage It's nothing else but this. Now, we can make implications for other things, but the trouble here is is that I might be separated from Christ. And that troubles me. That would be the disciples. Like, what will we do if you leave? And so, at the very heart of this passage has to do with a relationship between disciples and Jesus and this separation. And what does the future hold? That's what's going on in this passage. And so I would say to you, Jesus cares deeply for those who follow him. And he provides everything that is necessary to keep you stable. Here it said from this pulpit this day, Jesus cares very deeply about you to the degree that whatever you need in this world of trouble, He will give it to sustain you. He's involved. Your life matters. You're created in His image, and you're being conformed unto Him, and He cares about that very deeply. Do not say you're all alone, because you're not. You know, Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me, not alone. Jesus cares very deeply. Let's look at this text this morning. Responsibility. What is your responsibility in this text? Your responsibility is clear and straightforward, and it is a command. Let not your heart be troubled. You have a responsibility here. You can work yourself into trouble. You can breed anxiety in your heart. You can have your mind disturbed by many things. But you have a responsibility here to not become troubled. You can't can't just lay this off on this thing, that thing, or the other thing. You have a responsibility here. There's a cure for troubled hearts. There's a cure for anxiety. It's not farce book. It's not the local news. It's not the newspaper. It's not the radio. Those are not cures for a troubled heart. It's not a cure. Gossip is not a cure. Slander is not a cure. All this self-pity is not a cure. None of those things cure a troubled heart. You're responsible not to get caught up in a troubled heart that breeds anxiety and doubt. What does the word troubled mean? i give you a few examples. <laughs> oh, Herod heard there was a king born in the land, and his heart was troubled. 
when the disciples one night in a storm saw Jesus walking on the water, their hearts were troubled. It's a ghost. Like, man, this really stirred them up. Or in the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul would say something like this, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and you're turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who would try some false teachers out there. It got you worked up in your mind and in your heart. You've been reading all this nonsense on the computer and your heart's troubled because of all the false teaching out there. Let not your heart be troubled. If I remember correctly, the book of Psalms says, say this among the nations, our Lord reigns over false teachers and over everything else on this globe. So we don't have to be troubled. In Acts, he says, the Jerusalem Council, some, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, <laughs> unsettling your minds. This is the thing, troubled. Get us worked up mentally, worked up emotionally, in our hearts, in our being of who we are. We're troubled about something. And he's telling these disciples as he's about to depart via the cross, don't let your hearts be troubled. Now, to be fair, Jesus' heart was troubled at times, so let us say something about that. Remember, he was deeply moved in John chapter 11 at Lazarus' tomb. He was troubled. And then we find in John 12, he says, now is my soul troubled. And what am I going to say? Father, save me from this hour, but it's for this very hour that I have come. After saying these things in John 13, he says, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. You say, Jesus is troubled, but I'm not supposed to be troubled. Exactly. The troubling of his heart was the weight of bearing your sin and absorbing the wrath of his Father to pay for your sin. And he bore that trouble to Calvary and he paid for it. You don't have to be troubled because he paid for your trouble and he carried your trouble and he overcame your trouble. And he is troubled no longer. And there is a great refuge to be found in him. If I gave you some lexical definitions that are very lengthy, but let me give you some of the heart of these definitions about troubled. I want you to know what it means. And so, in one lexicon, it would be this way. Troubling means mental confusion, emotional turmoil, spiritual agitation. Mental confusion Emotional turmoil, spiritual agitation. Don't let your heart be like that. It's a command. The text here in John 14, what is a command? It's not a suggestion. Do not let your heart become agitated. Don't let it get worked up emotionally over all these things you have no control over. In Galatians 1, this troubling has to do with throwing them into confusion cacophony of voices in the religious world all around us. He says this, they say that, they say that, these people say this, and he wrote this, and he wrote that. Don't let your heart be troubled. We have clarity. Or from another lexicon, let me word it from them. Do not let your hearts be troubled. In this formula, 
the heart stands for self. Since the disciples are now to be left alone in a world, see if it's the same world you're in, in a world where there is conflict between the powers of this world and God's revelation, they will undergo inward shock and fear. They're left in this world with all this stuff going on, and it just shocks them. How can I live out Christianity in this? This anxiety is overcome, however, by what? By faith in God, which is identical with faith in Jesus Believers need not remain in a condition of fright and consternation, for you have a promise of eschatological peace. Eschatological meaning the end, the return of Christ. The day is coming for you, brother, sister, of absolute eternal peace. If that's true, why should I have consternation? Why should I have agitation? Why should I live biting my fingernails? I know what's coming. Peace. Boy, it's a whole sermon in and of itself. But let me give you a part of it. Isaiah chapter 8. Yeah, turn in your Bibles there. You've got to see this. I just, if I can do it briefly, I'll try very hard. But it is so wonderful The Bible is so simple. Isaiah 8, 1 through 15. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm just identifying where it's at, and you can read it later for yourself. Let me give you the scenario of what's going on here. There's this very malicious, evil, dreadful army. They're made up of Assyrians. How many are there? There's 185,000 cold-blooded Assyrians that are coming into the nation of Israel to slaughter them. That's troubling. Right? This is not a fictional story. These people kill people. Go to the book of Nahum, and there's dead bodies laid everywhere by the Assyrians. 185,000 people are coming to town to slaughter us. Well, don't be, in tr- don't be troubled. You, you look down here, and you look all the way down to chapter 8, verse 12. And this is what he says. The prophet Isaiah says in chapter 8, verse 12, Do not call conspiracy what this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Trouble. Don't be in trouble. How in the world can I not be troubled when a Syrian army of 185,000 people are coming here to slaughter me? Oh, that's simple. Just honor the Lord. Trust Him. That's it? Yeah, as a matter of fact, there's a guy by the name of Peter who picks up the same theme and reports this same event, and he does so in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. So Peter takes this situation in Isaiah 8, and he explains it briefly in two verses. He says, But even if you should suffer. Listen to Peter. Even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, what? You will be blessed. And here's the Isaiah. 
Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. What am I supposed to do, preacher? In your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy. You say, okay, and what else? Just be prepared to always give a defense for the reason of the faith you hold. All this turmoil coming, all this trouble, yeah, but I've got a Savior. I mean, if I can quickly, I don't know what this just came to mind, but I think it's applicable. I was at the jail visiting Brandy, and so let me say this, man. So here she is, and, and if you don't know the court system down in Tarrant County, all these tunnels are underground. So when you've got to go to court, you go down in the basement, and you walk in these tunnels, and you pop up over here in court. So the bailiff takes you. So you and the lawyer are walking. So here's Brandy and her lawyer and the bailiff, and they have this conversation. And the conversation comes up, do you know your judge's name? And she goes, I don't know his name. And the bailiff's like, you don't even know your judge's name? And she goes, it doesn't matter. What do you mean it doesn't matter? She said, there's only one judge. All other judges are under him. Let not your heart be troubled. We have a sovereign God over all things. Believe him. Trust him. There's not one maverick molecule in the universe. If your heart's troubled... It's a sign of unbelief. Now, why are they troubled? Well, separated from the physical presence of Christ, the death of the body of Christ on the cross, his burial in a tomb, the presumed end of all their hopes and dreams. How are they to abstain from a troubled heart under such difficult burden? What about you? Why is your heart troubled today? And why is your heart troubled? I don't know. Let's take a shot at it. Politics, national crisis, pandemic, economy, news broadcasts. Some of you are troubled because of sports, hobbies, religion, churches, spiritual slumber of our country in a world of wickedness, money, retirement, stock market, 401k, relationships, loneliness, arguments, rejection. All these things trouble me. Let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. That's the message here. What can be done to prevent my heart from being troubled? There's not a 12-step formula. Dr. Phil is not in my text. There's not some self-help book out there somewhere. You've got, some, you got a wise guy that can come up with something creative. My text only gives one simple truth to a nation under the insurge of 185,000 Assyrians. One message. And to you, this church today, and whatever's going on in your life, there's only one word you need to hear. Believe. Believe God. And believe also in Jesus. This is the only resolve. So this is the requirement of our troubled heart. 14, chapter 14, verse 1, the second part. Believe in God, believe also in me. That's what's required. What does believe mean? I've heard a bunch of definitions, but let me give you this one. To consider something to be true and therefore worthy of one's trust. To give oneself completely with confidence to another. Total commitment. I'm in the hands of God, and that is enough. Come hell or high water, come mission trip or stay home, whatever goes on in this life, I am fully convinced that God is able. 
Is that your position? No matter what happens in my life, no matter what unfolds this week, I know this, my God reigns and I can trust him. Is that your confidence or do you allow the news to tell your mind how to think and your heart how to tremble? You can waste your life with that or you can read this book and say, but I've got a promise. You remember there's a time, these two guys, they're called Christian and they're called hopeful and they go off path. They go down this place called Doubting Castle and they get the snot beat out of them and they're just about dead. And then he goes, oh, I forgot I got a key. He pulls out the promise, and he just opens the door. This is true. With all this going on, you have a promise from the living God of heaven. Do you believe him? Do you believe him? In Scripture, God and Christ are the objects of this faith. We rely on his power to help us. We're convinced that his word is true. This verse sets God the Father and Jesus on equal levels for the placement of our faith. Believe twice. Believe in the Father. Believe in the Son. Biblical, here's a short quote for you. Biblical belief, biblical belief is an annihilation of fear and trouble. When you're troubled, ask yourself, Do you believe God? Belief will annihilate trouble. Produces a calm heart. From the book of Ecclesiastes and from this passage today, I would say to you, Christians ought to be the calmest people on the face of the earth. If we believe what we say we believe, why would we be stirred up to act like the world acts Look, we know the outcome, we know who carries us, we know who sustains us, and so as we believe Him, trouble must flee. Revelation, verses, chapter 14, verses 2 through 4. Now, this command not to be troubled, this requirement to believe, now He's going to reveal something to them, and He's revealing it to you as I preach this text. And so here's the revelation of Christ to the disciples and thus to the whole church at large. Here's the revelation. Now, if you believe God, these next three verses are going to be very, very encouraging for you. Jesus himself says, in my Father's house. So just pause. It's not that he has to go build a house. There's already a house. There's already a place It's not a figment of your imagination. In his father's house, there is a place that exists. And in that place that exists, there's going to be people there. And whatever this house looks like, and whatever these rooms may be, this is what we know, and what is revealed to us is that our Savior is going to go through that house through the means of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, and he's going to go there with a purpose. And that purpose is he's going to prepare a room for Chris. He's going to prepare a room for Ronnie. He's going to prepare a room for Jeff and for Johnny and for John and for myself and for Jill. He's going to personally prepare a room for you. This is the revelation. I'm leaving But don't you worry, I'm doing something on purpose for you. And I'm not going to go all the way to heaven and do all this preparation and leave you to go to hell. 
Not only am I going to prepare it, but when it's prepared, according to my father's timetable, on a fixed day, I'm going to come back. And I'm going to do one thing. I'm going to take you. And you. And I'm going to take you. I'm going to take you with my own sovereign hands unto myself. And I'm going to do so that you can be with me forever. This is what the promise that Christ has given us. What a revelation. No matter what this God-forsaken world says and does, no matter what the political framework of my society is, no matter what Biden may try to pass next, I don't care because he does not have the final word. He does not have sovereign sway over my soul. This country may be going to hell in a handbasket, but I ain't going with them. I have a Savior who's working for me. I didn't vote on him. He elected himself. And there's not another term coming. It's an eternal reign over everything. What a blessed hope that he would make his abode with us. Prepare to cause to be ready. To put in readiness. <laughs> so if, you ever, if you're a father in the room, you ever had a little girl about two or three years old, and you've got to go out of town. It works like this. I'm going out of town. But no, don't cry. Don't cry. It's okay. It's, it's all right. Daddy will be back. I've got to go and do this. And after Daddy gets done with this, I'll come back to be with you. And then the, the tears turn into a little bit of a smile because of the promise of the return. That's what he's saying here. <laughs> Look, your Savior's leaving. But don't cry. Don't be troubled. I'll be back. You see, I've inherited an inheritance. I've inherited a place. How am I going to inherit it? Death, burial, and resurrection. And I'm going to inherit this place, and we'll get everything ready, and I'll come get you. And when I come get you, we will never be separated again. What a wonderful, wonderful preparation he is doing for us. The promise of this text, verses 2 through 4, is clear. I repeat, but shortly, two promises in this text. Jesus will come again. By the way, it says a side note, all these people want to find out the end of the times, when the Lord's coming, all this stuff about raptures and, I don't know, all these goofy stories. Look, you know what I'm satisfied with? I'm satisfied with the promise. The Savior said, I will come again. That's good enough for me. Why? Because I believe him. And whether I believe him or not, he's still coming. And the second promise is Jesus will take his followers to himself. One purpose to these two promises, that where I am, that where I am, you may be always with the Lord. He says... You know the way I go. What's the way? Well, you see, here in a moment, they're going to capture me, and they're going to whip me, and they're going to spit in my face. They're going to curse me. They're going to mock me. They're going to strip all my clothes off. They're going to lay me on a wooden cross, and they're going to nail me to that tree, and blood's going to gush forward, and they're going to stand me up on that cross, and I'm going to hang naked before a lost, condemned world of sinners, and they're going to take a spear, and they're going to jab it through my side, and water and blood's going to come out of my body, and it's there on that cross. That's the way to the place. 
That's the way your sin will be paid for in full. Because on that cross, not only am I suffering in the physical sense, but the full cup of the wrath of God is going to be poured out upon me, and I'm going to absorb the whole cup that not one drop will be left for my children, whom I purchase with my own life. That's the way to my Father's house. And once I inherit that house and make preparations, I will come and take you to myself. Now, the last point of the message, the reality. John 14, verses 5 through 7. Well, there's a bit of confusion about these things. Jesus said, uh, Thomas said to him, hey, at least an honest confession here, and that's fine. Jesus can deal with that. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? He's confused. He's claiming ignorance here, if you will. And Jesus makes it so very plain. I know there's three phrases, way, truth, and life. But there's only one truth being communicated. And that truth is, is I am. I am. I am what? I am the only way to God. And you say, well, that's narrow. This is Jesus' sermon. You want to fight with him, that's your business. I'm not fighting with him. He claims singularity. That means that all Muslims are going to hell. They reject Christ as God in human flesh. Well, if he's the only way and you reject him, you can't go to heaven. Any group, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, anybody that rejects the deity of Christ is not going to God because he's the only way there. Look, because you did a bunch of good works and nursed a bunch of people in Calcutta doesn't give you a buy-in. It doesn't work like that. You don't have enough money. You don't have enough good works. The only way this preacher or anybody in this room is ever going to get in the gates of glory is through Christ. There's no other way. Preach it. Believe it. Thunder it. And don't be ashamed about it. Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation. There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Believe Him. Leave Him alone. He's the way to God. He's the truth about God. And His life is the only life that gains access with God. You see, I can't live good enough to get to God in relationship because there's only one life He will accept, His sons, because it's perfect. And so if I want to be accepted, I must have life in Him. And if I'm in Him, then I can be moved into this relationship with the Father in eternity. But without Christ, there is nothing that will gain me entrance into glory. Now, John Speed, let me know this guy's probably Catholic or something, but I don't know. But whoever the guy is, whatever, this is a great quote. I'm not going to give you the name because then you go off and think all kind of weird thoughts. But let me just tell you what the quote says. I assure you, you like the quote. He says about this verse, John 14, 6, Follow thou me. I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow, the truth which thou must believe. The life for which thou must hope. I am the sacred way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. 
I am the straightest way. I am the sovereign truth. I am the true life. I am life blessed. I am life uncreated. What a quote. So we have this confusion by Thomas and the rest of the disciples. We have this clarity of verse 6 where Jesus says, I am the way. And we have this comfort. Look, if you've known me, you will also know my Father. And if I could put it into example, a little boy looks at his dad and he says, what was my grandpa like? You know, grandpa had passed away before the boy was born. What's my grandpa like? The dad says, look, if you've known me, you know what grandpa's like. Now, I say that illustration because what I want you to understand from this text, however it's worded in the ESV, I want you to understand this. There's not an implication of doubt. The dad says, if you've known me, you know what grandpa's like. This is what Jesus, Jesus is not saying you didn't know me in the past. He's saying this, look, Thomas, look, Philip, look, the rest of you guys. If you've known me, you will also know the Father. Because your knowledge of me, whatever you know of me, the same is true of him. That's why he goes on to say, look, already, now, you know him. How can Jesus say to them, you already know God? Because they know him. And he would even say, and you have seen him. Could you imagine the shock? When have we seen God? God is invisible. It'd be like me and John, we went to debate at the Mormon temple over there in Denton that day. And I go in there, <laughs> looking for a cup of coffee. Anyways, they don't, they don't drink coffee in Mormon stuff. I didn't know, I just wanted a cup of coffee, but they don't do coffee. And they go in the room, and it's like, there's a picture of these two guys on a picture. And I'm like, hey, who's those two guys? And they say, it's God the Father and God the Son. No, it ain't. What do you mean? Yeah, no, no. I said, God's invisible. <laughs> so that's not him. And Jesus don't have long hair because it's a shame for a man to have long hair. So I don't know who those guys are. Okay, I got sidetracked. But anyways, if you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father because He is the revelation of God. This verse is the comfort that was needed for Thomas and the disciples in the midst of their confusion. Do you know everything there is to know about God? I hardly think so. I certainly don't. Do you know Christ? Whatever you know of him is true of his Father. The comfort here is a guarantee to those who know Christ. So let's make that disclaimer at the end. All of these things that I'm preaching from this text this morning are true for every man and every woman and every boy and every girl in this room who believes God and believes Christ. That means you have absolute God-ordained assurance that right now at this very moment He is preparing a room for you. If my dad dies in the near future because his health is failing, if my children move off to Alaska with my grandbabies, my son moves to Illinois with a grandbaby, and my family's all spread out, and I can't hold my little grandbabies, and I have to see my wife hurt because she can't spend time with those grandbabies, you know what? I don't have to be troubled. You say, oh, because you're going to see your grandbabies again? No, because my Savior is going to come, 
and he's going to get me. He's going to take me to himself that wherever he is, I'm going to be also. And we are never going to be separated for all of eternity. And that's my comfort. This world is this world and it's fallen and all these things may happen. I have no control over them. But this much I know, one day I shall be home. And you have that promise as well. So in a world of confusion, in a world of opinions, they run rampant, don't you know? Tensions and instability. The Christian ought to be the calmest person in the room. The Christian should be the one person in the room who is not troubled. Do you like what's going on in politics? No, I just know it ain't the end. You like what's going on in our world? You like what's going on with abortion? Do you like all these things? No, I don't like any of it. But I know that's not the end. I know who's in charge of this deal. Well, what about this and this and this? And what about all these false teachers? (laughs) Don't you worry about all of that. We've got a sovereign God that will deal with all these things. We have a promise here. I know how things are going to end. And I'm telling you, the Democratic Party will not win. I'm telling you the abortionist is not going to have the last say. I'm telling you that nothing in this world and no philosophy is going to win. I'm telling you that the preacher gets the last word. And my pastor is Jesus. The Lord is my shepherd. And he'll have the final word. Look, we know that Christ is preparing an eternal home. And that he will come again. The life of the Christian is bound up in Christ. And it is there that he has found the way to God, the truth about God, and the life that is received by God. Yes, every person who knows Christ knows God. Rhetorical questions? What about you? What about you? What about you? Do you have a troubled heart today? Are you nervous about eternity? You'll wake up before the thrice holy God and give an account for your life. Knowing that this God is either going to throw you into hell or receive you into heaven. Do you have a troubled, nervous heart about eternity? Does the instability of life make you anxious? Does the instability of life make you anxious? Here's what's required. Believe God. He can do it. There's nothing that can limit His hand. Nothing. Surely you don't honestly believe that the devil can pull rank on God and take you out and cause you some mischief that God didn't ordain. If you believe that, read the book of Job. If you'll believe today, and you wouldn't have any problem in being baptized by immersion and professing your faith in Christ. And as a Christian, if your heart has become troubled in your Christianity, revisit your heart, revisit your faith. Do you believe God? If you do, troubles will diminish in your heart. Brother Jeff, you come and lead us in a closing hymn.